Well, good morning. Welcome to Palm Sunday. It's the day of the triumphal entry, and I'm just struck by the uh, the irony that it led to Jesus' tears. You know, even in the, the midst of this celebration, a high point, he was broken. Thanks, Marcy, for mentioning the uh, Good Friday service. It's, it's, um, it's a new thing, and I think it's, it's a, a good thing to try in the plaza, a wide-open public space where Christians will gather to acknowledge something that happened and uh, has left the world a changed place. And it's the only thing that, that really, the message, the gospel, is the only thing that, that continues to change people's lives, our stories, the stories of our lives. As Marcy was praying, the life change that the Holy Spirit works in us is good news because he can do it for everybody. And as I thought about what we could share this Palm Sunday, uh, I thought I'd fast forward a few days to Good Friday and talk about the passion of Christ. And of course, any time that we talk about the passion of Christ, there's an awfully good chance that people are not going to hear what we are saying, right? Uh, in our culture, when it hears the word passion, its mind uh, is skewed to areas that have to do with emotion or feelings. For example, if we were to ask this morning, um, what are people in the Treasure Valley passionate about? We would hear answers like uh, anything Boise State, right? Guns. Politics. Our hobbies, the outdoors, Harleys. And of course, we're all extremely passionate about anything that comes from or anything that hails from California, Oregon, or Washington, right? And we can be passionate for something, and we can also be very passionate against something, right? Passion is an emotion. Passion is a feeling. Passion is something that modulates. Passion comes and goes. But when we use the word passion in the Christian context, we're using a word that came out of ancient Latin. And passion means suffering or enduring. And a secondary meaning is an occurrence, an event, a phenomenon. The passion of Christ was not an emotional response um, or, or a posture or a position he took on an issue or towards someone. Instead, the, the passion was the unspeakable, the unspeakable emotional, physical, and spiritual suffering that Jesus went through for us after making a very informed, very conscious, very understood, and very obedient decision. And all of us in the room today, most of us are very familiar with the story of how after watching his, washing his disciples' feet and celebrating Passover with them, and in the midst of the meal, he excuses Judas to begin the process of betrayal. As Jesus knows the time is close, he and three of his dearest friends head for a garden. 
And Jesus leaves them in one part of the garden and he continues a little further. And it's in the garden that the passion, the suffering begins. Ironically, it begins in a place where we go for comfort and solace, right? It began as he prayed. In Matthew chapter 26, in his account, Jesus walked a little farther and finally fell prostrate prostrate and prayed. Father, this is the last thing I want. If there is any way, please take this bitter cup from me. Take it from me. Not my will, but yours be done. And during a break in the prayer, he goes and checks on his dear friends who are sleeping. And he wakes them, scolds them. Matthew says, with that, Jesus returned to his secluded spot to pray again. Jesus, Father, if there is no other way for this cup to pass without my drinking it, then not my will, but yours be done. Another break in his prayer. He returns to his friends and they are sleeping. And he wakes them and scolds them. Verse 44 of chapter 26 says, So Jesus left them again and returned to prayer, praying the same sentiments with the same words. Three times Jesus asks his father for another way. And after each time, God appears to remain silent. And Jesus, in an act of perfect obedience, humbly accepts the will of God. And then it begins. And came the betrayal by Judas, an arrest. And as hours pass, there's a hearing convened by the religious ruling class, who after they're done mocking and scorning him and berating him, they send him off to the Roman governor, Pilate, who hears the case and forwards it over to the Jewish king, Herod Antipas, who has really no interest in this case whatsoever other than to mock Jesus. He sends it back to Pilate. Pilate's got no grievance. He's not taking sides in this. Pilate refuses to find him guilty. On and on it goes, and Jesus endures these hours of emotional abuse at the hands of the people he came to save. Then he's handed over for the physical torture, the beatings, the scourgings, the crown of thorns, exhaustion to the point of near death. And then so exhausted and so beaten, he's made to carry a cross that his torturers are going to use against him to the top of a hill outside the city. And in this final act of Roman shaming, when Romans would nail someone to a cross, they would strip them naked before nailing them to the cross. 
the final shaming act, the final bit of abuse that they could heap on a person before they lifted the cross and set it into the ground. And there you hang in front of a crowd. Mockers, onlookers, the curious, but maybe worst of all, your family, your mom, your brothers and sisters. And you would think that um, this just can't get any worse until you find out that, yes, it can get worse. And it did get worse. Because Jesus was going to have his spirit tortured. In Matthew 27, he goes on to say, In the middle of the dark afternoon, from the cross, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You would think that the emotional abuse, the physical abuse, the exhaustion, hanging on a cross, the shaming of it all would be, it would kill us. Yet Jesus had to suffer something even greater than that. He was forsaken. He was separated. We have no way to comprehend the lostness of that moment. We have always lived in a world that has been blessed by the hand of God. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and that's the world we know. We have no comprehension of the torture that that comes on a soul when it is separated from the hand of God, from the care of God. And this is what so irritates me as I, I look out into the world. It's that how a, a part of our everyday speech, it's now been uh, commandeered and condensed and adopted for the keyboard, keyboard culture, and it's this, OMG. Don't laugh. Oh my God. I have heard it spoken by three-year-old children. I've heard it spoken by preteens and teenagers. I've heard it spoken by Gen Xers, millennials, baby boomers, even Jurassic Agers like me. Oh my God. They, it just flows out of their mouths. And we, I won't say we, it is always used as a statement of disbelief at something. Oh my God. Oh my God. Is that the new iPhone? Or in moments that shock us. Oh my God. The doctor says it's bad news. It's used to express both delight and excitement, or horror and fear. People use the same phrase to express honest disbelief or pretend disbelief. But for me, when I hear it, I hear that echo of Jesus hanging on a tree saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And I'm haunted by this idea that that the words that Jesus shouts from the cross in the middle of his pain, in the middle of the shame, in the middle of the physical abuse, in the middle of the emotional abuse, those words have become words that we have trivialized. Isaiah, the prophet who lived seven centuries before Christ, gives us a vision of Christ's passion from about 700 years before the event. And we look at the event from about 2,000 years of history on the other side. So in between us, this event took place. And the vision that Isaiah gets doesn't contain the, the minute details but it contains more the posture that Jesus would take. How he would cope with this. What it was all for. How Christ would face his suffering. And why he would face it this way. And how one day, here, we on the other side would learn to understand it. And try to make sense of it. And it's a long portion of scripture. And I'm reading from the voice paraphrase. This is what Isaiah wrote. The Messiah didn't look like anything or anyone of consequence. He had no physical beauty to attract our attention. So he was despised and forsaken by men. This man of suffering, grief's patient friend. As if he was a person to avoid, we looked the other way. He was despised forsaken, and we took no notice of him. Why did he appear to be suffering? Why would this person who's going to come 700 years later, why would it look like he's suffering? And Isaiah says, yes, it was for our suffering he carried, our pain and distress, our sick to the soulness. We just figured that God had rejected him, that God was the reason he hurt so badly. But he was hurt because of us. He suffered so. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. He endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. Then Isaiah points the mirror at at us. He says, we have all wandered off like shepherdless sheep scattered by our aimless striving and endless pursuits. The eternal one laid on him, this silent sufferer, the sins of us all. And in the face of such oppression and suffering, silence. Not a word of protest, not a finger raised to stop it. Like a sheep to a shearing, like a lamb to be slaughtered, he went, oh, so quietly, oh, so willingly. Oppressed and condemned, he was taken away. Then he asked, what did we do to stop it? He says, from this generation, who was there to complain? Who was there to cry foul? He was, after all, cut off from the land of the living, smacked and struck, not on his account, 
but because of how my people, my people, disregarded the lines between right and wrong. They snuffed out his life. And when he was dead, he was buried with the disgraced in borrowed space among the rich. You would think, well, somebody must really like Jesus because, you know, he's buried in a rich man's tomb. But that wasn't the case. The rich were the wicked. The rich were the unjust. This is another slam. He was buried among the rich, though he did no wrong by word or deed. Yet the Eternal One planned to crush him all along. This was God's plan. To bring him to grief, this innocent servant of God. When he put, puts his life in sin's dark place, in the pit of wrongdoing, this servant of God will see his children and have his days prolonged. For in his servant's hand, the Eternal's deepest desire will come to pass and flourish. How's that? When, Je when Jesus sacrificed everything, when he became the sin offering for our guilt, when he died the death that we had earned so we could escape it, it was so God's deepest desire could be realized. Why was Jesus so obedient? so God's deepest desire could be realized. So God's deepest desire must be us. Not our punishment, but our redemption. Sin had been atoned for. The veil between God and man was torn to shreds. And we can once again live in community with our Creator. God's deepest desire came to pass and is flourishing even now. That's God's deepest desire. The fact remains. As Jesus hung on the cross, he was hurt because of us. He suffered so. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. He endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. And if you're a Christian, this is such an agonizing week. Starts on such a high point the triumphal entry, and you're thinking, yeah, go Jesus. And it ends in such horrific fashion. Moment by moment this week, if you're like me, it's the gravity of my own sin that forces me every year about this time to face again the suffering of my Savior. And I am so sorry. Every Good Friday I find about 20 minutes of quiet time 
and it's my day of apology. I go back and I apologize to Jesus. Comes in the form of a prayer, but it's something that I need to do. I need to use that day to express my regret that it was my sin that he carried. And it was his breaking that made me whole. I want to talk real directly to two groups of people that are probably here this morning. If, if you're not a follower of Christ, this whole idea of his suffering on your behalf has to raise a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Troubling questions. And I can say this with a good deal of certainty because it's true of every person who has ever come to faith. Everyone who's ever come to faith and come to that point of placing their trust in Jesus has wrestled with the same questions. First, I know I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I have missed the mark. I know my character flaws. We know that we've lied, cheated, stolen, abused, we've trolled, we've slandered, and we know it's wrong. And I also know that Sometimes I avoid dealing with it. And we know that we are due the consequences of all those bad acts. We just know. And second, we know that we are so two-faced. For example, when, when I've been abused, the first thing I want is justice. But if I have been your abuser, the last thing I want is your justice. We want justice for ourselves and we are so slow to want it for others. And that's, that's not all. There's that just realization that there is some kind of wickedness in us that we just can't shake. We may be a good person, but no, there's still that streak in us streak of rebellion. And we tell ourselves that, you know, it shouldn't bother us. But it does. And if we could forget that part of our life, if we could isolate that part of our life from our everyday, seven-day-a-week life, we would do it. But we can't do it. So we kick it to the curb. We ignore it. And every week we're kicking something to the curb and throughout our entire lives, Lifetimes, we, we keep kicking things to the curb. And you sit here this morning, we sit here this morning, knowing that Jesus is ready, willing, and able to handle this. And yet, in Isaiah's words, as if Jesus was a person to avoid, you've looked the other way. You take no notice of him. If you're not a follower of Christ, I, I just need to tell you, Jesus is not the one to avoid. Jesus is your rescue. He is your hope. He's your way out. When you cry out to God and you say, God, I am in a mess. I don't know what to do. It's going to be Jesus that says, here I am. Choose me. I have paid 
the price for your freedom. I endured the suffering for you. And if you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about. We've all been in those moments. You know this is true. You know this is your story. When you placed your trust in the carrying capacity of Jesus Christ, he was was all over it. You were forgiven. You were clean. You had this new trajectory to life. You could not ignore him anymore. In fact, you began to crave him. And if you're a Christian in this room this morning, especially in this week, we still have to examine the kinds of lives that we're we're living. Because every time that we make a bad decision, every time that we make a decision that leads us in the direction of that temptation, Perhaps Christ has to endure a little bit longer. We're pinning more sin to the cross. Why would we keep on sinning? Why would we add more sin to his suffering? In a moment, we're going to show a clip from Passion of the Christ. And, you know, if you've seen the film, you know that it can be a little... um, unsettling and so I'm I'm warning you ahead of time it's been uh, carefully edited and um, we're just going to show a bit but the truth is friends every sin every sin will be accounted for the wages of sin what sin has earned is death And Christ has dealt with your death and offers you life. But only if you ask him to. The question is, how can you say no? Could you look in his tears? 
Say you don't think 